1: We're gonna dive right in today. Interestingly enough, as as I went to uh, as I went to share this with you, I I had a Twitter link that I wanted to share, and it looks like man, Twitter may have scrubbed this. I mean, look, like, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to tell you the the fight for free speech is uh, getting more intense, but it sure feels like some things that are thought provoking and some things just uh, they they seem to disappear. Without a lot of explanation, and, and I'll explain. The thing that that I thought was so interesting, this was a a post by, let me see if I can can find the individual's name here, uh, Kulak. This is a X ex or Twitter user, I still call it Twitter. Um, they posted a thing about why no one wants to join the military. Now, I tread lightly here because I, I have friends who are active military i have uh, friends who are veterans and who honorably served in the military and i don't want to turn this into well this is just bashing the military in general but there is a huge shift in the mindset of of how the military is perceived and and the esteem with which it was held you know even just a couple of generations ago and it is very curious. Now fortunately, uh-huh, I saved a copy of uh, of this and and I'll have to see about uh, getting a link into the show notes that that you can actually follow, but looking at the the prospect of conflict in the world today. I don't mean to me to be dramatic, but it sure looks like we are headed for big conflict as in possibly with China, possibly with Russia, possibly both of them at the same time. And by we, I mean our government seems to be steering us into a head-on collision with both of these nations. Now, I don't believe for a second it's because we're just defending America's interests and, you know, we're just, we're just trying to defend truth, honor, in the American way. I'm sorry, I don't buy into that. There are good people within the military, but the the government that controls the U.S. military is not using it as a force of good in the world. It's using it to project power, imperial power abroad. And they've been involved in this kind of uh, what Pat Buchanan refers to as global gamesmanship for a very, very long time. So, you know, with all these bases around the world, well, this threatens America's interests. You know, when we see this country doing that and this country doing that, why are we building bases in their backyard? That's not the purpose for the military. That's not why people, you know, swear an oath to the Constitution and to follow the president's orders. They're not out there to be world police. But, okay, I'm getting off on a tangent. Let's talk about why no one wants to join the military. Now, this poster says, I've been reading the Second World War by Sandhurst military historians John Keegan. And it explained a ton about 19th century, early 20th century military culture I didn't get. The Edwardians, meaning, you know, the, uh, the, the Brits, were patriotic as hell. The military was massively popular. The average person's diet had improved and increased in the 19th century, but the soldier's diet had improved even more so. It was a massive education and networking opportunity for people of all classes and produced bonds that would be necessary for social advancement. Now, conscription at that time was massively popular, and demanded from the population during peacetime, less because they wanted to make sure that no one was shirking, and more because they didn't want lower-class people left behind and all the opportunity in the army hoarded by the connected who'd be able to get into a volunteer force. So in Britain, which had always abhorred conscript conscription and had uh, Whig or proto-libertarian objections to it, the populace practically rebelled and formed illegal regiments and militias and drilled to participate in martial life. This was a phenomenon across Europe, and after the Treaty of Versailles restricting Germany to a scant 100,000-strong army, the country was flooded with the Free Corps, non-government paramilitaries and militias, to either advance some political movement or just be part of military life. Now, here's what's remarkable. This was after World War I. Millions of young men had just died as part of regiments many little different than this, and yet there was this much demand from young men to be part of the martial world. And the reason is because military and military life was actually a good career move. It actually formed lifelong bonds in the early 20th century. Amidst the population boom of the early 20th century and all the excess young men with little inheritance, the military and militia life was a major vehicle for social mobility and aspiration and forming social connections. So what changed? Why is it almost completely opposite, this, in the early 21st century America? Well, those attitudes survived the World Wars, even the Western Front of World War II. But they were devoured by the Vietnam and civil rights era. Implicit in a lot of 19th and 20th century militarism was the vision of every soldier a citizen, every citizen a soldier. This ethos was first expressed during the French Revolution. It was aspirational. The subjects, divorced from the state and military, were now armed and able to participate in civic and military life. They were now citizens. Of course, by the early 20th century, this sounds very menacing. Soldiers must obey orders every day. If every citizen is a soldier and bound to obey on pain of death, well, that's totalitarianism. Now, the author here says, in fact, a friend recently said, you know, the Weimar Republic may have been the only true democracy in history. We talk about how your vote matters and how you're deciding your government, but the public really has little say. Barack Obama versus John McCain was literally the option presented to America. That was their spectrum of options. Whereas Weimar Germany, they had monarchism, liberalism, communism, fascism, all right there on the ballot, and any of them could win. And one of them did. Now, it wasn't a coincidence that the seeming pinnacle of democracy exactly coincided with and produced the era when most of the men were in uniform and many women were in auxiliaries. So the ethos of universal suffrage and universal conscription went hand in hand. With the contradiction, it implies, are you the master of your country or is every other person in your country now the master of you? Are you empowered with your rifle to move the politics of Europe or... Have you been enslaved to your state, people, and their fate? Now, one might think this is the source of disillusionment, but America had conscription in its 1940s martial ethos through the 50s and into the 60s. But, of course, there's a contradiction between universal suffrage and this masculine martial conception of the citizen. Why is the vote of a woman or disabled man who's never served equivalent to a man who, through conscription, has been effectively taxed years of his life at often extraordinary risk and effort? How exactly does racial equality work when some groups are underrepresented in military life or are underrepresented in the most dangerous roles? See, these questions were papered over with discrimination. What did you do during the war was an interview question that made or broke your entire economic life in a world where a massive percentage of people had served. This was a massive inducement to do so, and indeed you could still hear concerns about missing a war in the 50s and being shut out of the aspirations and opportunities available to other luckier cohorts of young men. Now obviously, even though there was little legal barrier to women fulfilling those corporate and professional roles, this fact of life was a massive batter, b- barrier rather. But then the 64 Civil Rights Act was passed, and the logic of it necessitated affirmative action to women and underrepresented minorities, whilst at the same time a new generation of upper-middle-class young men, insulated by one of the most abundant and forgiving economies in the world in world history, rather were encouraged by family and friends to either avoid the draft with bogus medical excuses, hide out in university, or, indeed, dip out of the country for a spell. And far from suffering a fatal blow to their career and social prospect for what previous generations would have called unforgivable cowardice, they were rewarded. Military service became increasingly a marker of the lower class, and the liberal educated non serving class, already critical of the war out of self-serving concern, self-serving concern rather not to be drafted, latched onto tales of war crimes in Vietnam, often going so far as insulting and spitting literally and figuratively on returning soldiers, not wealthy enough to dip into university. There were no return parades. GI benefits were often non-existent, with some unable to get health care, even for malaria. The disease a New Yorker probably didn't catch at home. And not only were they not given priority in employment, lacking both the right ethnicity and university degrees, which are the only qualifications protected from a disparate impact assessment, many fell to the bottom of the economic ladder. So America's recruitment capacity never really has recovered Total U.S. military personnel shrank from 3.5 million in 1969 to 2 million in 1985 to 1.3 million today, even as the U.S. population has increased from 200 million to 330 million. You getting the picture here? America has gone over from one, per, gone from over one percent of the population actively serving at any one time to nearly one third of that. And the professionalization of the U.S. military to an all-volunteer force has, in effect, been just a cover for this collapse in recruiting capacity. I'm going to come back to this in just a few moments. I don't know if you find this interesting as I do, but uh, there's more to it. And again, we're headed in a dangerous direction.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm talking about why no one wants to join the military. And by the way, I was able to get the Twitter link that I'm including in today's show notes to work. I don't know what the deal was. For some reason, it came up and said, sorry, something went wrong. Try again. If you just click the refresh button on your browser, it should bring it up. But I'd I'd encourage you to check this one out for yourself. This is uh, from Catgirl Kulak. And I don't know much about this writer, but this is a very interesting explanation and, and examination of what happened. I mean, there was a time when people would lie about their age to join the military during World War II. And even during World War I, there were people who, you know, wanted to sign up because they felt that it was a duty. Now, do you see that today? Not so much. And the question is, you know, well, what happened? We professionalized our military to an all-volunteer force, but America's military really isn't significantly structurally different. These aren't really professionals. Your average three-year contract private isn't making some obscene, yuppie amount of money for his ambitious professional commitment. A private makes under $30,000 a year. A second lieutenant with a university degree and years of professional development who may have had to plan out his career from 16 years old, getting a congressman's letter of recommendation to attend West Point or another service academy, they're only making 40 to 60000 a year. Now, U.S. GDP per capita is 72000 If that lieutenant had gone to a second-tier school and gotten a computer science degree, he'd be making six figures and have vastly more control over his life. If that private had taken his love for the outdoors and willingness to do hard, dangerous work for months away from home and become a crab fisherman or a remote oil rig worker or fracking technician, then that young man could probably likewise make six figures and be free to quit whenever he wanted. So it's not a good career move. In the 1780s or the 1900s, an ambitious scion of a decayed noble family desiring to conquer the world might want to become an artillery officer. Well, today he wants to work on Wall Street or at Google. Even if you're starting out from a very rough place, there are almost certainly a dozen better things you could do to advance yourself faster, for better money and with less effort, than joining the military. The only appeal of the U.S. military for decades now has been to people who really want to escape their situation, who really felt they needed to hard reboot their life who were really drawn to military life out of sheer love of it, or who really didn't trust themselves without someone yelling and managing them. And then the army went woke. Now, wokeness is toxic to the army not just because of the values clash with most ordinary recruits, but it places front and center the entire dynamic that makes the military such an awful career path. Not only are young men not enticed to join the military out of the knowledge that they're wasting years not getting a university degree or that their gender, skin color, and sexual orientation are still going to count against them once they're out, they're now having it declared to them that they'll suffer that disdain and discrimination even in the military, invariably by some fat, university-educated minority woman brought in to give a diversity lecture. So even while you're serving the U.S. government, it's going to rub your face in the fact that it's undermining you and your career. And it's somehow a mystery that the Army can't recruit? The U.S. military is taking close to half the people it took in the 1980s, and it still can't find anyone. Meanwhile, it's not uncommon to hear in various forums open talk from active military that if the U.S. military were used in an internal war against dissent by the Trump Trump proletariat... They desert. Indeed, anonymous leaked U.S. military wargaming projects something close to a 50%, projects rather, something close to a 50% desertion rate in any major civil conflict. And the writer says there's nothing to be done to save it. There's no will to double or triple pays to reflect GDP or what similar effort could get a person in the U.S. economy. Don't enlist. Go fracking or Alaskan crab fishing. There's no political will to undo the bizarre system of racial and sexual patronage that benefits everyone except the productive class that drives the U.S. economy. And there's no way any of the elite would recreate a world where military service was a better guarantee of job prospects and financial security than a university degree. So, America's effective recruitment capacity and civic feeling will continue to collapse even as Americans hate each other and their government more. And this last line really grabbed me. You think recruit capacity is bad now? Wait till they imprison Trump. Isn't that something? So, you know, again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to denigrate anybody who has served. I'm not trying to tell you that, uh, you know... You're a bad person for doing so? I have a son who just turned 18 earlier this year. And, of course, this is a fact that's not lost on military recruiters who hound him ceaselessly at his high school. And, and they mail him and they call him and they text him and, hey, they want to talk to him. And, you know, they're they're trying to sell him on this. And he and I have had some very interesting talks. And, you know, I, I, I really would like to refer him to people who've actually served and ask them, hey, you, tell him, is this a good time to become a piece of U.S. government property? Spoiler alert, most of them would say, no. No, it's not. And I bring this up because I, I wonder if we are going to find ourselves, you know, facing conscription again, if we find ourselves in a conflict that's too big for, for our uh, world policeman government to handle, what choice are they going to have? They're going to be—they'll want to draft our daughters right out of the out of equality. Well, women are just as good as this. Only I don't think there's enough support for this government. Now, lest you think I'm just being terribly unpatriotic, I want to make it really clear. I do believe that there are some things that are worth dying for. I believe that there are some things that are so precious they are worth defending, even to the point of bloodshed. Having said that, if any of my kids were to tell me, "Dad, I'm not going to be drafted," I would do everything in my power to help them avoid conscription. Not because I don't feel that uh, you know there are things you know about uh, about America that are worth defending, but because I don't want them being uh, enslaved, and I'm using that word advisedly taken, you know, against their will and and bent to the will of a master, in this case, the U.S. government, I wouldn't suffer that. Especially for the things that the U.S. government currently is standing for. Look at the things that we're learning right now. Did you see just the other day, I think it was just yesterday, actually, Newsweek published an article about how the FBI is identifying Basically, Trump supporters, MAGA, America. You don't even have to be out there wearing a red hat and picking fights with anybody to be identified as a threat to the existing power structure. If you want to be left alone, if you want to be free, you are a threat. Oh, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to tell my kid to go sign up and be a part of that apparatus. Not. It's a corrupt cabal of amoral jackals, and I'm being as as diplomatic as I can in saying this. There's no way on earth that I would be supportive of, yeah, I guess we better defend them. Sadly, I think, and I'll, I'll go ahead and just say it right out, right straight out, the people who are going to defend America are more than likely going to be defending it against its current government. How sad is that? but that's that's where we seem to find ourselves. So, we live in a very interesting time and I'm sorry this this hopefully doesn't come off as just a total negative rant against the military, but if you wonder why is it so hard for them to recruit today? I think that background information from this uh, this Twitter poster fills in some pretty interesting gaps. You would think a government that actually was serving its people well and that was giving its people cause to support it would have absolutely no problem whatsoever getting people to rally to its defense. How do I know this? Well, I think we've seen that from time to time. The Revolutionary War, granted it wasn't everybody, but they found the people to fill those gaps. The war between the states, same thing, World War I, World War II. But then all the police actions that followed, not so much. It's almost like someone, somewhere, lost their way.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hopefully you haven't uh, absolutely written me off as, as hopelessly lost, but... Look, I learned a long time ago that uh, sometimes there are unpopular truths or unpopular subjects that need some addressing. And it's not that I have all the answers, but I think that uh, they're worth discussing. And I will risk, you know, incurring the wrath of people who, you know, might otherwise, you know, have things in common with me by by bringing them up. Okay, the goal here is not to convince you that you're stupid or evil or wrong. But I think these deserve uh, some deeper thought and definitely some consideration. So, my goal is never you know, to set out to make you angry, but I often find, you know, by bringing up topics like this, it does make some people pretty uncomfortable, which in turn can can make them angry. So, I guess we'll see how it shakes out. You know, the importance of being willing to engage in open rebellion simply by being a wrong thinker isn't something that everybody immediately grasps. I mean, some people's eyes are open, but... I have a great article here from J.B. Shirk from AmericanThinker.com talking about feudal slavery and how we may have to end it again, this time on a global level. He says the ruling class would have us believe that the most dangerous threats to our security and happiness are Russia, global warming, and unapproved speech. In actuality, the lethal threat of our times and for the foreseeable future is the unconstrained power of the state. State control versus individual liberty is the conflict that will eventually lead to war, social upheaval, and revolutionary change. Everything else is either ancillary or a psychological distraction. Now, the Marxist globalists know this. Everything they do is engineered to steal personal freedoms and expand government's oppressive control over the living. They seek a centralized power structure in which as few people as possible own everything, while everyone else lives as a serf. To that end, the small cabal of globalist oligarchs continue to siphon wealth and power from ordinary people, strengthening themselves and making their enemies, us, weaker with every thieving pass. Ordinary people increasingly understand what's happening. However bad the government's COVID tyranny has been, it has had the salubrious effect of pulling the wool from the eyes of a great many people. A primary reason that COVID tyranny has backfired is that it relies on a premise that normal people can see is not true. That the danger from the Wuhan flu is so great that it justifies lockdowns, censorship, and forced injections of experimental vaccines. Now, had people been dying in the streets in horrific and ghastly ways, these monumental violations of human rights and liberties might have been understood if not condoned. However, ordinary people armed with nothing more than an elementary school level comprehension of the scientific method and medical ethics know that such radical programs to fight disease are inexcusable unless absolutely necessary. Once people learned, despite the government's embargo over such essential information, that healthy young people had almost no risk of dying or becoming seriously ill from covid they also knew that it was unethical to force any kind of experimental treatment upon the unwilling. Once people learned that the government's twofold promise that the vaccines both prese- prevented both viral infection and transmission was an easily proven lie, then they knew that there was nothing scientifically rational behind the government's imperious commands. Once the government chose to defend its actions, including forced matching, masking rather and isolation, as critically necessary... Despite mounting evidence that these policies did more harm than good, ordinary people began to realize that the whole exercise had nothing to do with public health and everything to do with state control. Once government scientists started speaking in infantile gibberish such as, we are working at the speed of science, the jig was up. The propaganda had become just too obvious. So a lot of people woke up during COVID. They looked around for the first time, and saw clearly that the government had been building a prison around them for decades. The Patriot Act, the answer to foreign terrorists succeeding in one of the worst attacks on American soil, has been turned into a device for government to unconstitutionally spy on the American people's private communications. The news media, owned and operated by a handful of transnational oligarchs, does not objectively report news. It covertly works with the state to manipulate Americans' minds and shape their opinions. International free trade agreements have not brought greater American wealth. They've destroyed the middle class and put America on a path to financial instability. Poverty-inducing inflation is not a natural characteristic of a healthy economy. It is a government-constructed instrument for transferring wealth from those with small savings accounts to those with giant stock portfolios, while simultaneously ensuring that regular working-class labor strikes generate domestic strife and urgent calls for state intervention. Political parties are not really representing the American people and fighting each other tooth and nail. They're secretly working together to keep Americans fighting amongst themselves while the uniparty sabotages the country and undermines the electorate's will. I like the example he gives here. How do you evade actually securing the border when doing so has been a popular policy supported by a supermajority of the American people for over 50 years you kick the problem back and forth between the Republican and Democrat parties and act as if there is no obvious bipartisan solution. If ordinary Americans were deputized and given legal immunity to police the border, our country would be secure within the month because the Uniparty and its multinational corporate friends seek cheap labor and cultural destruction within the United States. Congress and the Pentagon will continue to insist that Ukraine's borders are more vital than our own. And he says it's all hogwash. J.B. Shirk says, yes, eyes have been opening far and wide and millions of Americans finally understand that it is not European war, global warming, or free speech that threatens our future security and happiness, but rather the expanding control of an entrenched and authoritarian ruling elite. Tyranny took hold on these shores decades ago, and it has metastasized to the point that no moral thinking person can deny what the eyes so clearly see. The problems in America, first and foremost, are created and sustained right in D.C. So the battleground is set. Liberty-minded Americans know that the unconstitutional federal government is a monstrosity that must be deconstructed. And the monstrous Leviathan knows that it must trap and subdue the American people before they can overturn the system and start anew. Central bank digital currencies, social credit scores, viewpoint discrimination and censorship, mass surveillance, vehicles that depend on an unstable electric grid for power, the criminalization of private farming in the name of global warming, and the proliferation of artificial intelligence surveillance systems dedicated to monitoring, tracking, manipulating, and punishing Americans who misbehave. These are just a few of the tyrannical deep state torture tools that have already come or will soon be coming our way. Now, keep in mind what he's talking about here. If the government succeeds, you will lose your privacy for good. You will own nothing. You will regurgitate only pre-approved speech. You will do as you are told. And the centralized authorities will keep one AI-empowered finger on a kill switch at all times to make sure that you never go rogue. That's a feudal society with mass slavery. Anyone who argues differently has aspirations to be a future feudal lord in control of a nation-sized plantation of slaves. For all you pessimists out there who think this future is certain, he says, think again. The last time the world went through a technological revolution similar to ours was roughly 600 years ago when Johannes Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press. That single innovation created a ripple effect that brought feudalism, to an end, ushered in the Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution. It introduced mass communication, encouraged ordinary people to question authority, cultivated cultural self-awareness, and forged new nation-states. In the process, literacy rates skyrocketed from close to zero to nearly universal over the next few centuries. Elites' stranglehold over information eventually disappeared. And as the printing press ideas spread across Europe and the New World, the feudal nobility destroyed presses, enforced censorship, imprisoned printers, and punished readers. Still, ordinary people prospered in both the knowledge and wealth, and feudalism died. His point is, today's ruling class sees technology as a weapon that will ensure its feudal supremacy for the next millennium elites want to read you of the gutenberg press where only they print books of the future they failed during the enlightenment and they will fail again because they take their monopoly over innovation for granted just before the civil war private currencies will again flourish just as before the civil war he's not prophesying here the black market will swell from 15% of the economy to over 50 and self-aware serfs will chase today's noble lords all the way back to the 15th century J.B. Shirk says there is a global revolution in the making. Prepare accordingly. I know some people say, that's not like a call to violence. It's not. It's a call to something much more subversive, and that is a call to personal independence. I still maintain the, the most revolutionary thing you can do is become such a great person. Character-wise intellectually spiritually and of course financially as well as independent as you can be as self-reliant as you can be an example to the people around you that's the kind of stuff that changes the world and it will have a lot more lasting impact than picking up a pitchfork and a torch and you know charging the castle a little something to think about there this
0: is the brian hyde show This is the Brian
1: Hyde show. All right, welcome back to the show final segment for today's show and I've got uh, got some pretty serious territory to cover here, so let's jump in. You know, Anthony Tau- Fauci's uh, tap dancing skills are pretty impressive, especially when he's being questioned about anything COVID related. Yes, even in front of Congress, he was he was making Moves that would have had Sammy Davis Jr. going, dang, (laughs) this guy's really got some moves. Well, John Miltimore writing for, uh, this is actually published on the American Institute for Economic Research, three questions for Dr. Fauci on his alleged secret visit to CIA headquarters. John says, Dr. Fauci and the CIA have some splaining to do. According to a new letter from the House's Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus Pandemic, Fauci was admitted to CIA headquarters without a record of entry while the agency was conducting its official analysis of the origins of COVID-19. Now, the letter claims Fauci participated in the analysis to influence the agency's review. The date of this alleged meeting is not disclosed. So John has some questions. He says, did Fauci request the meeting or was it the CIA? Why was the meeting held in secret? And finally, was the CIA aware that Fauci had interests that may have conflicted with his ability to make an an objective assessment of the origins of COVID-19? And John goes into each of these questions, including, well, was there a conflict of interest? Why was the meeting held in secret? Who authorized it? And who requested the meeting? And who was present? If Americans want the truth about COVID-19 and its origins... John Miltimore says they should stop supporting government-led efforts to censor speech and start pressing those in power to answer questions, starting with Dr. Fauci and the CIA. He reminds us, free speech is truth's greatest ally, which is exactly why authoritarian regimes throughout history have been so hostile to it. So there's something to keep uh, in the back of your mind or keep it on your radar screen. I don't think this issue is going to go away, and I... And I'm sorry if this sounds vindictive, but I really hope that Anthony Fauci lives long enough to stand trial for the things that he has done. I hope justice is served, and I hope it's served in this life. I know it will be eventually, but I hope it's served. All right. Speaking of serve, what purpose should education serve? Now, you might get some interesting answers to this question. I've got a great piece here from Alethea Hitz. This is from intellectualtakeout.org about uh, the intellectual purpose of education or why impractical subjects are still worth learning. She says, I've heard this complaint often, and she says, I'll confess, I've occasionally said it myself, what use is learning math? It's not like it's going to help me in life. Now, in eighth grade geometry, those complaints seem legitimate. Why was I calculating the angles of triangle XYZ? I didn't know what career I was going to pursue, but at least for her, she said it wasn't going to be math. I barely appreciated the subject, and I vividly remember my relief upon finishing my final math requirement midway through high school. So why then would I study geometry, or for that matter, why pursue any field not directly related to my future career? Well, if we're honest, she says few jobs require a detailed knowledge of particles and slitting open a frog's gut isn't something we'd slap on our resumes. So that information is useless, right? Well, she says, no, not necessarily. She says, I thought education was about accumulating facts. We need to learn information required from each subject. And once we drop these facts in like our mental piggy bank, you know, then our education would be complete. But then she talks about what education is. Now, she says, let me, let me illustrate that your mind is more than just a storehouse of facts. Education is about forming the mind. So to illustrate that, imagine a piggy bank that every time it received a coin, morphed into a different, different shape. Drop in a dime, your pig might change into a cow. Add a quarter, now you own a porcelain elephant. And these coins, rather than just slipping into the piggy bank and remaining distinct from it, change the fundamental nature of that piggy bank. I like her analogy. In the same way, education isn't just about compiling compiling various bits of information. Yes, you're slipping those coins into your mental piggy bank, but those coins will change the very nature of your mind. I love this. It's, It's such a great take. And she says, the key to education is the process, the learned ability to think clearly, analytically, and systematically about the world. And this ability will serve us well even when our knowledge of facts fails us. She's right. That's how you get the facts. By knowing what questions to ask. By exploring and analyzing and trying to make sure you're getting the most complete picture. Very well done piece. Again, this is from Alethea Hitz on intellectualtakeout.org. It is in my show notes at theBrianHideshow.com. All right, here's our article of the day. This one I saved for last because I really think it's, it's a, a great one. How to cope in the midst of crisis. This is an article from Richard Kelly, who I believe writes from Australia. He talks about, you know, the other day I found myself in a defiant mood. It's not my default position these days. Most often I adopt a, I'll ignore the government and every subsidiary authority and every captured agency or institution and get on with my life attitude. He says, I imagine myself floating on a quiet waterway in a small dinghy, away from the turbulence of a stormy sea. I talk to the strawberries in my veggie patch as they flower and the tiny berries grow. I walk and play with the dog, a source of great and genuine joy. I buy bread and sausages for the Lions Club Sausage Sizzle. I read from the Western canon of literature. I race in the Supervets class at the local cycling club. I learn to recite a psalm. And he says, most days, this gets me through. But not this day. This day, the undercurrent of troubling developments caused a ripple on the surface. The the eddies of censorship and globalist health technocracy power grabs tossed my little boat about. The digital ID and skills passport wind from government ministers stopped me from being able to slumber in the stern, unconcerned. Each of these things are big deals. Big, solid bricks about to be cemented into the wall around our freedoms." And he asks, who can command these waves and winds that toss us about? As my general vague feeling of unease hardened, with the help of a morning caffeine hit, into articulate thoughts and themes, a mood change overcame me. I'm not content this day to ignore this outrage. The horror of a government response to a respiratory virus, crashing the economy, suspending schooling, imposing house arrest on the entire population, denying medical care, mandating treatment with an experimental therapy deliberately fearmongering and scapegoating those who declined the safe and effective and on and on ought in a sane world where the concepts of shame and accountability still mean anything to have been followed by a period of intense self-examination and public atonement. Yet the official inquiries are asking none of the right questions. He says, if anything in the way of new laws or regulations were to be introduced, they ought to have been focused on making sure the kinds of overreach we suffered from never happened again. Sweeping a new broom through institutions like the Human Rights Commission, who said nothing at all as the poorest in society were locked in their housing commission flats without notice. Or dismantling forever the so-called National Cabinet, conveniently opaque and invented out of thin air to provide a fig leaf of innocence as the Prime Minister and Premiers played out pilots washing of the hands in reverse, this time the usurpers calling for the execution of the people. But he says that's not what we have. Instead of resettling the cornerstones of our democracy, the will of the people being restored to the pinnacle, and government installed by our consent, we have ever more draconian rules to suppress those who object. Censorship, power grabs, digital tracking, great. When we see no repentance, but rather a continuation, and escalation of the catastrophic policies that got us into this mess, it's hard to continue to believe it's all just one big mistake. Now he says, I did have a plan B and C. Plan A was essentially write to my member of parliament and the editors of the Daily Papers. That went out the window a long time ago. Plan B was to accept and prepare for future draconian measures and again be ready to be excluded from society. Grow some of my own food, barter and exploit like-minded networks, turn off the TV and phone if necessary, use cash, live my life, read, play music, cook, ride, not comply. Plan C was to run. Maybe to an off-grid farmlet that I'm yet to buy. Maybe just to another address or to the bush or maybe just run. No plan. But he says, this day, I feel like not running. I feel like staying put. I feel like repelling the advancing hordes. I feel like defending the things I hold dear, not running and leaving them behind, defending my right to speak up, defending my right to ignore, expert advice, defending my right to move around, to spend as I see fit, to eat what I choose, to walk about in the land of the living, breathing fresh air, unfiltered by a porous rag strapped to my face. To be unfashionable to hold unfashionable views rather about all sorts of things, including things that are self-evidently true to vote in secret without feeling the need to tell the world if I voted red or blue, yes or no, to be unafraid, to let others worry about the latest variant, to be confident and joyful, to laugh, to be part of the most subversive movement on earth or in heaven for that matter, to join with others of like mind. He says, I won't be easily shifted. I'm here. I think. I dismiss propaganda for what it is. I vote for what it's worth. I exercise my rights. That was a great kick in the seat of the pants. Kind of needed that this week. This is The Brian Hyde Show.